are continuing our study in the book of Romans, and for whatever reason, the Lord has not given me some sermon series title because I don't know when the Lord is going to have me stop preaching from Hebrews. He's just not shown me. And we're just going to continue to do that by looking in Hebrews 11. Actually, we're going to start with Hebrews 12, but really be digging into Hebrews 11. I want to ask you this question. If you were able to plan your dream vacation, what would it look like? What would it look like? What would your dream vacation look like? I want you to just think about that right now. Where would you go? What would you do? Um, I, I, I know <laughs> if, if I open the floor to everybody, everybody's hands would be raised and we'd be talking. We had, a, we had an opportunity last year to kind of go on one of those vacations. It was, uh, I believe it was 10 days. And my, one of my wife's dream vacations, it became ours. And uh, she planned and planned and planned, and she got the right people to tour with us and so on. And, and it really, we were just so blown away and so amazed. Um, and we went to Italy. And we started in Venice, and we went to various places, ended up in Rome. Uh, we saw the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And uh, so it, a lot of different places that we got to visit. And we were just we were really impressed. We, we loved that. And, and I want you to think right now, what would your dream vacation look like? Where would you go? What would you do? I know as a boy, I had dreams. I had dreams of doing something with my life. So I had a dream job. Initially, that dream job had something to do with sports. And either in the World Series, hitting that grand slam that won the World Series or catching that touchdown pass to win the Super Bowl, right? Yet we all have lofty dreams, not necessarily sports. Um, you know, I matured out of that, however, and, and I realized, wow, that's not going to make much money. I want to be an inventor. And I read about Thomas, uh, um, uh, wow, um, Thomas Edison. And I just thought, wow, that'd be really neat to be able to invent things. And so as a teenager, young teenager, I love to, inv- to try and invent things, try and invent things. And I dreamed about outer space, so I eventually added my dream set on becoming an astronaut and what it would be like. Uh, my son p- picked up on this, and his dream is one day to invent a spaceship that goes the speed of light. So uh, I want to ask you, what would your dream job look like? What would you be doing? Where would you be working? Uh, would you be the boss or would you be the guy who's doing the, the work and coming up with the ideas and, and all of this? What would your dream job look like? What would your dream house look like? What would your dream spouse look like? Okay, now if you're married, you better have the right answer to that one, okay? What would your, yeah, dream spouse. What would your dream car look like? How many of you, when you were a teenager, you, uh, you at least you initially thought you bought your dream car, right? <laughs> Maybe a 67 Mustang. I know I was a teen pastor one year and, or two years in, um, at a church, and one of the guys, his, his dad did this, but it was either a, it was either a six, somewhere or mid-60, 64, 65, 66, 60, some Mustang, and it was a classic. And I was like, are you serious? And his dad owned a hardware store, and so, yeah, you can figure I want to ask you, you, dreams are not bad things. Many of us today, we have dreams. We have dreams that have to do with our children. We have dreams that have to do with future jobs or a a dream about our future, our spouse, or how much money we would make. And these dreams aren't necessarily wrong, but I want to just tell you that sometimes these dreams 
can become distractions of what God is really trying to do in our lives and through our lives. I mean, money is a means to an end, but it can serve as a distraction. You remember the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man had a dream, and it had a lot to do with money, and he was kind of now shifting a little bit of his focus. You know, maybe this Jesus has some wisdom, and he now is thinking not just money, but eternal life. So Jesus, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? And Jesus looked right into his heart, and he saw this major distraction in his life, and it was wealth. And his life was all wrapped up in wealth. And he was probably, when it says a rich young ruler, he was young and he was probably a synagogue ruler. He had risen very quickly. I mean, most synagogue rulers were not young. But more than likely, all, the, all, all commentaries that I read, he was probably a synagogue ruler. So this guy was starting to make his mark in the world. But there was a serious problem. He had a love for money. And Jesus said, you know what, you want to... You want to gain eternal life? Then you're going to have to follow me. But to follow me, here's what I'm going to ask that you do. You got to sell everything that you have. Give your money away to the poor. I want you to think about being in that rich young ruler's sandals. How would that make you feel? The Bible says he walked away sad because he knew what was the most important thing in his life. Wealth was a means to an end, but for him, he had obtained, or at least mostly, had obtained that dream of wealth, and that was a distraction to him. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want us to look at some of these things, promises that God has given us. There, there are really two types of promises. There are promises that come directly from the Bible. And those are inspired of God. They speak to us. They're universal. They're for everyone. They are part of the inheritance that we have in Christ. And there's another type of promise that God gives us. And those have to be weighed. Those we have to walk through because those are words that God speaks very personally to our hearts. And sometimes when God begins to speak something to our hearts, it gets a little cloudy because it goes through this filter up here. And many times that dream has way too much to do with me and not nearly enough to do with Jesus. And God needs to switch that around because the dream that he puts in your, what he calls you to, maybe it's marriage. And then feeling accepted and loved. You know what? maybe there's a little bit of too much of you in that because God wants to show you that a spouse is not going to meet that need. Not like you're wanting him to or him or her. And that dream can become a distraction because God, he wants you to be fully satisfied in him. And then the expectations you have, Listen to me now. You go into a marriage with all kinds of expectations of being happy, and finally, this is my dream come true. And you have all of these expectations, and your spouse is not going to live up to those expectations. Do you hear me, church? Yes, right? Some of you are angry with me right now. Pastor Mike, you just blew up. You popped my bubble. You know what? Maybe some of our bubbles need to be popped, okay? But the truth is, these dreams, they're good. God can speak dreams into our hearts, but he is needing them to not become a distraction, a hindrance. You there in chapter 12, verse 1, listen to what 
the author of Hebrews says, now I'm kind of going to the conclusion because chapter 11 is all about faith. And so chapter one, excuse me, chapter 12, verse one, begins this conclusion as he's kind of honing in and bringing it to this point of application. So I'm just going to read verse one and touch on it a little bit, and we're going to go back to chapter 11. You're with me now, chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, in other words, in view of what I've just said about faith and all these people who were living by faith, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the names of which are listed in chapter 11, let us, and he says, do two things. Number one, let us throw off everything that hinders. Say everything that hinders with me. Everything that hinders. And the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We are all in this race, not in competition with one another. <clears throat> That's not what he's getting at. The concept of competition is not here. It, if anything, it is for the spirit of God to so fill us that the old me gets beaten out in this race by the new me. If you want to sense anything of competition, then it's right there. That the old me is crucified. It's not in this race anymore. So the first thing that he says there is throw off anything that hinders. Now, last week, last couple of weeks, actually, we've been looking about how <clears throat> promises are built on the truths of God. The, the, the book of Hebrews gets into some of these amazing truths. God then gives promises rooted in those truths. And our hope, our confidence then flows from those promises. <clears throat> However, if we're not careful, then we can listen to the lies of the enemy get distracted from the promises of God that are rooted in truths, bedrock rooted in truths. And the consequence is that we start believing these lies and we start searching for the things of the world that are so attractive that we put our hands up to God. And remember, we're saying God has his arms extended, ready to pour out his grace constantly if we would but turn to him. And repentance does this, and it turns back to receive God's grace. Abraham did this, and it says in, we learned last week that it, in the chapter 11, that by faith, he was empowered or enabled to become a father. And so we, we saw here that these promises of God can become dusty. And we start believing lies. We start following after those lies. We start disbelieving God. We can become angry at him. And in the midst of these struggles and these trials, we're wondering where God is in the midst of all of this. Setting aside his truth, that can become a hindrance. But there's another hindrance that I want to talk about this morning. And that is the good. God giving us good things. Sometimes the good, you've heard me say this before, but the good can become the enemy of the best. God has the best. God has very good things in store for us. And we can tend to settle for the good. We're gonna need to get into some, some of those dreams 
that God has put in your heart. He's wanting to refine them, but to refine it means that the grapes need to be crushed. They need to be pressed in our lives in order to produce this new wine. And sometimes we settle for just the good. Just, you know, okay, God, what is it that you're wanting in my life? And, and we settle for the good when God has the best for us, but it's the good. We can become distracted by it. We can, we can chase after these dreams and we can end up missing God's best for us. So here's what I, this is the controlling question that I want us to answer. How do we recognize these hindrances and throw them off? How do we recognize these hindrances? these distractions, and throw them off. Turn with me now to chapter 11. I want us to look at the life of Abraham, two particular instances in his life, and we're going to see the tendency is, that's there, but how Abraham resisted that tendency, and how he came out as a man who lived by faith. And that's going to be the controlling statement here. Abraham learned, and we need to as well, live by faith. But what does that look like? And I tell you this, because he chose to live by faith, he refused to allow the dreams that he had. And he had dreams just as well as you and I do. But he never allowed those dreams to become a distraction. He never pursued them instead of this passion for God. All right, chapter 11, starting with verse 13. All these people, and he's listed several here, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now listen to this. Abraham reasoned, that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. How do we live by faith? To begin to answer that question, I want to share a little illustration here. I counted them. I think we have moved. As a family, we've moved about six times. <clears throat> We have become, and, and not only that, we have helped many people move. Um, we've become very proficient at packing U-Haul trucks and vans and you name it, big and small. The last time we moved, I think it took two large U-Haul trucks. And I think it was Donald, you said, Mike, the next time you move, if there's ever a time, please let's do just one van. Can we do that? Just one truck. Let's just try and do one truck. And uh, which is going to mean a major, major yard sale, right? But the truth is, my wife, she, she 
loves to she loves to be organized when it comes to this, and she is not a procrastinator. She will take boxes, okay, like this one right here. And this box has a label on it, MBR, Master Bedroom. And every box that we pack from rooms will have that room's abbreviation on it. And various things will go into these boxes. When we pack everything up and finally arrive at our new destination, I remember we moved from uh, Virginia Beach down to here, then what we did was we moved all of these boxes, but all of the boxes properly labeled would go to a room. My wife would stand at the door and she would tell, she would look at the box and say, that goes in that room, that, that goes in that room, yep, that goes in, and she would just direct everybody to which rooms they go in. You see, this though is how many of us live our lives. We compartmentalize. We have over here our compartment of family, and we have over here our compartment of fun and recreation. And we have over here our compartment of our job or career. We have over here our compartment of uh, hobbies, music, perhaps. Over here we have another compartment, and that's what we do in church and our church friends. And we have over here, kind of mixed in with the latter, is our faith in Jesus Christ. We tend to compartmentalize so much of our life. Ladies, you do, a, you do a better job than us men of not compartmentalizing. But all of us can do this. We like to put things in a box. And we label the box. And we say, well, this is my work. And so when I go to work, it's all about work. When I go to the, uh, the, the, the store, it's all about buying something. Unless your wife says, oh, go, let's go window shopping. Yeah, let me not go there. So we, we do tend to compartmentalize. Um, we, we have our hobbies and we have our ministry in our church. And of course, well, that's, we are going to incorporate faith. But many times we tend to take our faith and we put that in a box as well. And it's separate from our work. It's separate from what we do in the neighborhood. It's separate from our fun and recreation. And, but living by faith is something so very different than this. Because if we, do, if we compartmentalize, even with our faith, we're going to have these dreams, right? And these dreams, maybe it's about our house. Maybe it's about a spouse. Maybe it's about a job. And we compartmentalize those things. And we begin to become so fascinated with these things, these dreams but we get very confused as far as how does God fit in? And, and that's probably how we would word it. Okay, well, how does God fit into my job? How does God fit into my family? You know, here is something that you will find. When, when we pack up, when my wife packs up boxes, and she can sometimes be a little finicky about this, to be honest, sweetheart. And she likes everything done just right. And, you know, oh, don't put that in that box. That's breakable. And so we want to put everything that's breakable in another box, and we're going we're gonna to label it fragile. And we, we, so there, there's a certain way that you've got to make do these boxes. But here's what you will find. In every single box, I think, you will find because it's in every room in our house, every room, you will find pictures. And my wife loves 
pictures. There's a picture of my family at an old church in front of a cross they had there during Christmas, and that's my whole family right there. Jimmy, wow, buddy, how old are you there? Maybe eight years old? I think, wow, you're, you're a young guy then. And then there's me, and this is before Shine and Jimmy were born, and yes, I have a mullet. Okay, I'll cover that one now. But uh, yeah, <laughs> business up front, party in the back. We, we, but you'll find pictures in my house. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say, in my wife's mind, these are the most valuable things in our house because they represent people. We do have a few pictures of scenery in our house, but that's because those pictures of scenery, you know, it's not just because my wife necessarily loves them. There might be one or two like that, but generally, those pictures were given to her and have tremendous sentimental value. The rest of the pictures are about people. Because for my wife, especially, but for me and, and our family, people is, is everything for us. Because people are eternal. And we live for Jesus to impact people. That's why for my wife, when we're moving and something gets broken, oh, well. So what? It's a piece of furniture. It's, it's a table. All right? But for pictures, oh my goodness, guys, if you ever help us move, do not ever drop boxes with pictures, all right? These are her very precious commodities. See, this is like us with our faith. In our room, in every room in our house, there are pictures. They're like our faith. We are called by God not to figure out how faith fits in with these things. I think my wife, she figures out where the pictures go first and then how the, the furniture fits in, all right? Maybe it's not that extreme. But the, the truth is, this really is how we're to live our Christian life. When I go to work, the most important thing is not, truly, church, listen to me, it is not about how much money I am going to make. That might determine whether I take just this job over this job, but when I go to my job, the most important thing is I am going as a Christian man who is pursuing Jesus and lives by faith. I don't want to compartmentalize my faith. And I don't even want to think, okay, well, how can God kind of fit in here? I go to my job as a missionary. And it's not just because I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian businessman. I've been a Christian businessman most of my life. My greatest passion is not how much money I'm going to make. That is merely a means to an end. I don't want that to become a distraction. Because if it does, Jesus will end up saying to me, Michael, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And my wife will not really be really happy about that because I've misplaced my priorities. I'm joking there a bit. Okay, maybe a lot. The truth, though, is that we can become so fascinated with the stuff of the world and my job. Yes, it's my dream job. And for someone to be preached, for you to be listening then to a sermon about living by faith, it's like, hey, hang on one second. Are you saying that I need to jeopardize my job? And so what we do is we shut our mouth because the most important thing is how well I do at my job and, may, and, and trying to get that promotion. And I would like to ask you this. Those of you who work outside your home, how many of the people in your workplace even know you're a Christian? 
I'm not saying this to try and put us on a guilt trip. I'm, 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 what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to test the waters here. Because many times we don't even realize when our dreams have become distractions. I've entitled this message Boxes. Because for us to live by faith, we need to stop compartmentalizing. But to stretch the analogy a little bit, if we do, then that means then we are going to have our faith as the central focus of every box, of every word, because that's our faith. How do we live by faith? For Abraham, let's look at what he did here. It says that they did not, looking down there at verse 13, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted. Now, when he says they, I think he is speaking very specifically of Abraham and Sarah at this point. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say, listen to this, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Excuse me, that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have op had opportunity to return. There is this passage right here and the one in the next paragraph. The author of Hebrews looks at a, a phrase or a sentence and he grasps a truth that most of us would never have seen. So I want us to go to Genesis and I want us to see this truth that he pulls out of the word and I can only imagine he meditated on this and he asked many questions and he came to this conclusion. They said, and Abraham is the one who actually says this, but his wife had that same vision. I'm an alien and a stranger on this earth, in this land. And he did not mean that he was from another country. Let's look at that passage. And it, I, I've got to find my place in my notes here. Wow. Genesis. Okay. Give me just one moment here. All right. Here we go. Genesis 23. We're coming back to Hebrews 11, but Genesis 23. He is living in the land of Canaan at this time. And Sarah had just died. Abraham is 137. Sarah passed away at 127. That would make Isaac then 37. He wants to find a burial place for his wife. He says this then in verse 3, Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, here we go, verse 4, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Now, the story goes on. I'm not going to get into it. I want us to look at this. On the first reading, we would think Abraham is saying, I am a, an alien and a stranger among you, meaning I am from the land of Ur or I am from the, the city of Haran. But the author of Hebrews says that's not why he said it. 
he said it he said it because he was looking ahead to a promise i am living here i am not settling remember he lived in tents i am an alien and a stranger among you i am choosing not to settle because i am looking ahead to a better place. This is what he is thinking. It doesn't tell us in the text. So why does the author of Hebrews say that's what he was looking ahead rather than saying, you know what, I'm a stranger, I'm an alien among you because really I'm from Ur, I'm from Haran. Because if that's what he had said, then surely there would have been opportunity for him to go back to Haran or go back to Ur. His family was there. But he specifically says that he will not do that. As a matter of fact, in the very next chapter, he realizes that Isaac is lonely, and he, he thinks just like most parents, I got to get this guy married. So what he does is he sends off a servant to this area of Haran, and he says, I want you to go to my relatives, because at least his relatives had been impacted by the one true God, Yahweh. And I want you to go to them, but he says, she needs to come here. Please don't make it so that Isaac, my son, goes back there. Because even though they were not settling in the promised land, 400 years later, Israel, his descendants would be. He was not wanting to go back to Haran. He did not see himself as a, what would you call it, a Heronite or, or, or an Urite. That was, that was in the past. He is now looking ahead. He was choosing not to settle. I'm an alien here. His focus is ahead. It's not backwards. I'm an alien here. I'm a stranger amongst these people. He could have built a house. He could have lived in a city like his Nephew Lot had done, but he chose to live in tents because, because he kept looking ahead. You know, the point is that we are not called to settle. We are called, if you will, to live in tents. You see, Abraham was a follower of Yahweh all of his life flowed from this truth. He did not compartmentalize his faith. His faith was in everything, in every area, in every dream that he had. It was all about living for this amazing God who had revealed himself and given him a promise and was calling him forward. And so wherever he went, whether it was any kind of job, any place to live, I am an alien. I am not a settler. My focus is on the promises of God. And whenever he, he, he would interact with people, people knew not only was Abraham a wealthy man, kind of a side note here, but Abraham was passionate about following after this God that spoke to him years before, given him this promise. He was a follower of Yahweh himself. He did not compartmentalize. Abraham learned to pull out the pictures in his boxes, if you will. His had to do with faith. His had to do with this God that he was serving. And I want to ask you, as you, as you go to your jobs, if you work outside the home, can I ask you, number one, do the people even know that you follow Jesus? And number two, 
when you go, what is your main desire? What do you really want to accomplish there? When you stand before God, he is not going to applaud you for how, you know, the, how many sales that you made. How did you make Christ known? Now, making sales is important. It's a gift that God gives certain people. He didn't give that to me. I'm not a salesman. He gives us certain gifts. We use our gifts. But what, what a tragedy in our giftedness rising up within a company and no one ever knowing that we're a follower of Jesus. That we failed to somehow even pray, God, show me, how can I impact my boss and the people that work around me? How can I go to my place of employment today and shine Jesus? How can I live in a way in which people would say there's something different about this guy? How can I pull out the pictures, if you will, from my, from my job box and show people? How can I live for Jesus Christ? You see, I, I fear because sometimes we can become distracted. I'm going to find my notes here in just a moment. Here we go. We can tend to settle. As I say, Lot settled. When he settled in Sodom, there was a promise of wealth, of ease, and the good life. And he received so much of the opposite. And he lost his entire family, his wife and his two daughters. Lost them. He did not know how to live by faith. He was a settler. You know what? The wealth, the ease, the good life, th those are blessings from God. Lot settled for the good instead of the best. Sometimes fun and recreation can become that pursuit in our life. And we can actually plan our weekends and the most important time of our week are the weekends when we get away and we have fun. Sometimes it's just anything other than God's call on our life. Anything that looks better than a distant promise. Sometimes the pursuit of love and acceptance from men over and against God's love that says follow in this way. Have we settled? Because when we settle, we create boxes and we compartmentalize our life. And that's how we choose to live. And every now and then we turn to that box of faith. And the challenge that we see here from Abraham, you know what? I'm just passing through. The stuff and the things of this life, they're good. They're blessings. But they are not my passion. What is, what is your passion? How do you live by your faith? I want us to turn to the next section there in verse 17. Because God does fulfill his promise, at least in part, for Abraham. He had been looking forward to having a son for 25 years, from the time he was 75 to the time he was 100. 
God had been giving him this promise of a son. How is he going to be able to inherit a land without a nation? And how would he inherit? An, how would he end up having a nation without first having a son? He thought maybe Ishmael would be the one. No, nope. maybe he thought uh, Eliezer. Eliezer can inherit everything that I have. And maybe through Eliezer, his servant, he would be able to produce a nation. And God said, no, none of this. Trust me. I will do this. And finally, Isaac is born. He's 100 years, Abraham is 100 years old. His wife, Sarai, is, is 91. And here now, the, the promise is finally fulfilled. Not in total, he still has not inherited the land, but he is given this promise. And God needs to make sure that Abraham has not created a box here and said, you know what, God? You can have everything else in my life, but this right here, no, this is mine. This is my son, Isaac. This is my family. You can have everything else, but not my family. I will surrender everything to you, but not my family. So God needed to test Abraham. Abraham, what is really in your heart? Has this fulfilled promise that I've finally given you? Is it now becoming a distraction? Is it now becoming the pursuit of your life? Just like a job can become the pursuit, wealth can become a pursuit. You know, saving up money, I want a bigger and better house. And you, you get into that one and eventually it's not satisfying you enough. So you want another bigger and better house. And we do this with our cars and any possession we have. Is it becoming a distraction? So God tested Abraham. And so by faith, it says Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And he was thinking in verse 18, he says, you know, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And I'm, supposed, I'm being asked to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And so he imagined if he was going to have to put Isaac to death, then so be it. I will do whatever God wants me to do. But God is going to fulfill his promise. And the only way to do that, I guess, is if he's going to raise my son Isaac from the dead. But I am willing to lay it down. Turn with me to Genesis 22. I want us to look at just a few verses in this. I did say that he sees something, the author of Hebrews sees something here that in our first reading we would probably gloss over. Now it starts off in verse 1 where he says sometime later, that is after the birth of Isaac, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Let me just pause here for a moment. We are aware, by the way, this is kind of a side note, that in Second Chronicles 3, that Mount Moriah was another name for Mount Zion. Mount Moriah, is, there was a section in which David purchased from Arana the Jebusite, a threshing floor that became the site for the temple. And may I also add, the place where Jesus was crucified. Many theologians make this connection that the very place where Isaac was to be sacrificed ended up being the very place where Jesus was sacrificed. Abraham supposed maybe God would raise Isaac from the dead 
But in the end, God the Father truly did raise his one and only son from the dead. He says, I want you to go, because Moriah is a region, I want you to go to the mountain I will show you. It takes them three days to get there. And in that time, apparently God showed Abraham where he would go, which mountain and where on that mountain, because that was very important. It wasn't just any mountain. It wasn't just this mountain on the top somewhere, but it was a specific mountain, and it was a specific place on the mountain. Now, he does not, we don't get the description of it, but maybe through a dream or somehow God communicating to Abraham, he said, I'm going to show you where to sacrifice. Here's, here's the significance of this. Because, and I'm skipping to the end, spoiler alert, but in the end, he of course does not sacrifice his son. It was only a test. But what was the substitute? A ram caught in the thickets. And I thought about this. How interesting. Because God didn't say, I just want you to go to Mount Moriah. But I want you to go to that mountain in the region of Moriah, and I'm going to show you a very specific place because, listen to this, because that's where my provision of the ram is. If it was 100 yards removed, Abraham would never have seen the ram. But no, Abraham, I need you to go here. Can you trust me? I'm going to lead you every step of the way. Can you trust me? I'm going to ask you to take the very life of your son. Now, I'm going to suppose that Abraham, as we read through this story, he truly believed that his son was not going to die. And if his son died, God would raise him from the dead. Though that last part we don't see very clearly. I'll get to that in a moment. But he did believe that Isaac would live. We know that because as we, as we, were, as we turn to verse 6, excuse me, verse 5, he says to the two servants that are with him, he says, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there, pointing to the mountaintop in a specific place on the mountaintop. We, that is Isaac and I, we will worship, then we will come back to you. He said that in faith, even though God had told him to take your son Isaac, his son Isaac. In verse 8, well, in verse 7, Isaac says, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Apparently, Abraham had not told him yet what he was going to do. And he says, Abraham responded, verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb. He believed this. I want to ask you, is, is that what really happened? Did God provide the lamb? Yes, he did. God brought Abraham specifically to this place where the ram was caught in the thickets. God provided. But the author of Hebrews doesn't settle for this. He says, you know what? He even went so far as to believe that God would raise his son Isaac from the grave. And so I'm going to suggest that Abraham's thinking, and we're going to see this in a moment. He said, you know what? God's going to provide the lamb. I'm just going to believe that. But if I am mistaken and I have to end up killing my son, God will raise him from the dead. 
I'm going to suggest to you that he truly did. The author of Hebrews isn't just pulling something willy-nilly out of the text here, making it up. This is what Abraham believed. Because as we skip down, let me give you the verse. Verse 10. They had reached the top of the mountain. He had set the wood down. And he begins to tie up his son. I am sure that he, he are, at that point, he had told his son. Can you imagine him not telling his son, Dad, why are you doing this? This is freaking me out. You know, it, it, it's as if you want to sacrifice me. And his father Abraham says, ha, ha, ha. Yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Pulling a fast. No, no. He, I'm sure he walked him through this. Okay, God told me to do this, but I don't know exactly what it is. God's going to do something. He's going to provide us. God, I, I, because I know it's through you, Isaac, that God is going to produce this nation. Can you trust God with it? Can you do that? There's no sign of struggle. Abraham doesn't, excuse me, Isaac doesn't try to get away, hit his dad, overcome him, do whatever he can to, to break free. He allows his dad to tie him up. He allows his dad to lay him down on the wood. And it says right here in verse 10, when he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. There was no ram. Hey, God, I've done everything. My son is on the altar here. There is no ram. I'm going to trust you. And he reaches now for the knife, and he takes the knife in his hand. And at some point in the process of raising it, because he was ready to kill his son, and obey God. An angel said, Abraham, Abraham. He took the knife because at that moment, his son was as good as dead. Okay, God, you didn't do as I anticipated. I guess I will now take my life's son, my, my, my son's life. And I believe, and this is what the author of Hebrews says, he reached for that knife and he picked it up. Why? I'm going to kill my son, but I'm still believing that my son is going to live. And the author of Hebrews says, Abraham believed God would raise him from the dead. The very passion of Abraham's life lay on that altar. Maybe Abraham had become, excuse me, Isaac had become such a love in his life and a fulfillment of 25 years of waiting we don't know how old Isaac was. Most say he was probably about 12, but we don't know. He was still a boy. But that dream lay on the altar. And Abraham was ready to end it. And I want to ask you, this dream that you have, maybe it's a promise that God has spoken to you very personally recently or maybe years and years ago has that dream become a distraction for you consuming your attention and your passions have you fitted into a box kind of set it away well this, god this is my box in essence you can have me put pictures in all other boxes but this one no this is my box god it's mine can you step back and can you put that dream on the altar? Put it on the wood. Get ready to light the fire. Get ready to put that dream to death. 
Because I'm going to tell you this, that God responds to the surrendered heart that's willing to obey. How did Abraham live by faith? He refused to be a settler. He still looked forward to the promise. I am not living for this here. I refuse to allow this, this land and all that it promises and even his wealth. And God blessed him so much in wealth, but he refused to allow that to become his passion and therefore a distraction in his life. And then finally, when God brings this dream and this promise, at least partially to fulfillment, God says, lay it down, Lord. I'm not just going to encourage you. Lay it down. Lay that dream down. Lay that promise that you feel God has spoken. Be willing to lay it down. Because I'm going to tell you this. Then the posture of your heart is one of yieldedness and surrender to the heart of God. His promise will never fail you. And if you are willing to take that knife in your hand, if he has you slay it, and it's truly of him, he will resurrect it. I promise you this. Now, I don't know how this, I'm speaking somewhat metaphorically. It's, it's, it's a true story, and it has application to our life. But I don't know what that Isaac is in your life. I don't know what that knife would be in your life. And I need the Holy Spirit to show you right now. So God, do that to each of our hearts. But what dream do you need to lay down, put on the wood, and be willing to slay? Because every God-birthed dream will come to pass should we choose to live by faith. Abraham did. Everybody around Abraham knew who he was. He was a man of God with a vision and with a passion. He did not compartmentalize. His relationship with Yahweh was in every area of his life. He didn't get caught up in the things of the world because he, was, he chose not to be a settler like Lot. Everything. For Abraham was on the altar. God did, however, choose to provide a, a lamb. Abraham's suspicions were correct. God did not have to raise, literally raise his son Isaac from the dead. But he stayed his hand. And it says here, verse, nine, verse 12, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham offered his one and only son as a sacrifice. God provided in another way. God the Father, however, did lay down his one and only son, did take his life 
but did raise him from the dead. That story, true story of resurrection is a resurrected hope. So I'm telling you this, if you lay your dream down, those divine dreams of God will be resurrected. I want to close in prayer. Father, if we are becoming distracted by the very things that you have blessed us with, would you show us? Would you even be so gracious as to show us how we're compartmentalizing them, how we're pursuing them over our pure, sincere devotion to you? Would you show us? And Father, if this is the case, right now, we purpose to lay that on the altar. We purpose to take the knife in hand and we sacrifice this. This is yours, God. We're laying it down. It is now within your power to raise it up again. As you choose. But in my heart, Father, this is our prayer. This is our cry. I will follow you. I will not pursue the things of this world. I refuse to get caught up in what the world has to offer. And I will settle on this one thing. Jesus. And only Jesus. God, you are my sole delight, my one and only passion. Everything else falls in line with that. Everywhere I go, it will be about Jesus. Every desire in my heart, every ambition will be about Jesus. And Father, as we lay this on the altar, for your good purposes and in your timing, you raise it up, but it's yours. These things you've blessed us with, they are yours. These relationships that you've blessed us with, they are yours. My children, God, they are yours. You know how much I love my family, but they are yours. Show us each, God, how we live by faith and look ahead to that better country. In Jesus' name.